Take your Bibles and we'll return to 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 13 this morning. Uh, over the next two weeks, I will be gone out of town um, on vacation. So we'll have a couple of our men in the church be speaking. Um, at the end of the month, I'll be gone again um, as part of the Togo mission team. And uh, we'll have Pastor Stephen and Jonathan be continuing our series in 2 Samuel as well. This morning we look at a challenging passage in 2 Samuel 13. What effect is your sin having on those around you? What effect is your sin having on those around you? In a recent article, an unbelieving author examines the observable fact that parents' habits often tend to be passed down to their children. I found the article to be fair in many ways as the author states first that the patterns we pass on aren't always the worst things. This isn't an article that just bags on parents and say they're the problem with the world. We can pass on good habits and patterns in our lives. Yet secondly, she does note that very often we do tend to pass on the worst traits to those with whom we interact the most. She writes, it was William Shakespeare who said in The Merchant of Venice that the sins of the father are laid upon the children. Sometimes children have to pay for the things their parents did or didn't do. Sometimes we suffer because of how an ancestor lived or what they did. The cycles that are passed on are sometimes consequences of an action and even sins. Now, very often, we don't even realize just how much our family, our friends, are being influenced by either our ungodly or our sinful behavior. In her final point, she encouragingly makes the case that you don't have to be tethered to the sins of your forebears. So we return to that opening question. Do you recognize the danger that your sins present to your children, to your friends, to your church family. We all have a much greater influence on others than we recognize. And what you tolerate in moderation, your children may do in excess. So are you being as intentional and biblically wise with how you are influencing those around you? How will the sins in your life that you allow to go unchecked affect other people. This text warns us with some of the most sobering examples in our Bibles to take the sin and sinfulness of our own hearts seriously and to seek God's grace to eradicate them where we see them growing. This passage almost as a warning light as it continues the story of David, as it continues what we've just seen about his sins with Bathsheba is like a warning light flashing danger, danger, danger. This warning comes from the loving voice of your God. Take your sin as seriously as he reveals it here. Now chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel provided for us the turning point of the book. We were growing, climbing up, up, seeing David established as a godly king. The turn in chapters 11 and 12 were not good. 
Through Nathan, God said to David in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Though God has forgiven David, we looked at that in Psalm 51 last week. He still must face the consequences of his sins for years to come. Theologian and author Alex Mateer has stated, Repentance is like fetching a stone thrown into a pond. Inasmuch as the stone can be retrieved, but those ripples continue on and outward. Chapter 13 and following then show the incredible and disastrous consequences of David's sin within his own house. These chapters of our Bible, this section of scripture, are meant to be heard as a sermon, an extended sermon. This is an illustration of what sin does. Now the sin described in this chapter is of a nature that I want to take special care in how we discuss it this morning while not minimizing the lessons God has for us here. I think the ESV does this delicately, so we'll stick with that language. But you need to understand just how violent and evil the sin described here is. I also want to encourage us, remind us, the Spirit of God intentionally included this passage for us as a reminder of the dangers of our sin. And including it in the Christian scriptures, he reminds us of the grace that we need and can be found in Jesus Christ alone. So let's begin our reading in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 22. 2 Samuel 13 and verse 1. This is the word of our God to us, his people. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. The son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. 
She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. Our chapter this morning is a mess. It's a story of lust, sexual assault, hate, and premeditated murder. It dramatically illustrates that sin brings disaster into our lives. Let's ask for God's help as we continue to look at the text, as we seek to understand the lessons he has for us. Father, we come before you crying out for your help to hear this word well and accurately. Help us not to dismiss the actions of this sin because we have not committed acts like this, perhaps. Help us to recognize the nature of these sins. The same nature that dwells within us. Lord, stir within us a fear of God that would run from these sins to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll consider our text this morning in three points. The outline, the ideas in the outline are not original with me. I thought they were helpful and perhaps the best way to present these to you. First, the perversion we ought to abhor. The first half of this chapter describes Amnon's gross sin against his sister. We'll consider each of the characters mentioned in the story. But first, let's put our attention to Tamar. She's the only one in the entire chapter who does and speaks what is right. In this narrative, we see her entrapped, ignored, violated, despised, banished, and finally desolate. The narrator wants us to see her point of view. As she resists, notice how she argues. Look back at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to give you a more literal transition or translation of the original Hebrew. She says, no, my brother, do not violate me. For things like this are not to be done in Israel. Don't do this godlessness. And I, where could I take my disgrace? And you, 
you would be like one of the godless wretches in Israel. Now please speak to the king, for he will not hold me back from you. In these verses, she gives him five reasons to stop what he's planning to do. First, she urged him against this violation. Her very first word is no. She includes a form of the word no in the first four clauses of her response. As if sexual assault is not bad enough, this is an incestuous sexual assault. The fact that he was her brother is pointed out in the text 11 times. She's off limits. Second, she declared that this kind of wickedness had no part among the people of God. They had God's laws. This godlessness was characteristic of pagans. Third, she pointed out that this would ruin her life. She would be utterly disgraced. He would be stealing the life she was supposed to have as a pure daughter of the king. Fourth, he would utterly shame himself. She says he would be as an outrageous fool in Israel. The word fool in verse 13 doesn't really capture the strength of the Hebrew. The word means a wicked pervert or a godless wretch. She tried to get him to see that he would be branded as a disgusting degenerate if he did this. Lastly, she makes this final desperate attempt to persuade him to stop. Her words might be a little bit confusing to us, but I really think the best way to understand them is that she is trying to say, give this last ditch effort, just wait. I don't think she believes at all that David would allow this marriage as it's clearly against the law of God as written in the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible. But perhaps Amnon could be convinced to take a less violent route to get what he wanted. She's buying time. But he would not hear her arguments. He refused to listen to her pleading. What we see is that when we are in the deception of sin like this, we're blind. We don't hear biblical or even rational arguments. We're deaf. He was deaf to what she was saying, to what she was arguing. He was only focused on taking what he wanted. In the moment, he would not consider the cost of his sin. Think about the last time you gave in to some type of sin. It might have been anger or impatience. Were you thinking clearly? Were you thinking about the effects your words had on anybody else? Or were you so filled with your own passion for stating your case that nothing else mattered? The narrator has carefully crafted this story to display the utter horror of this sin. He wants you to see the deep sinfulness of it. He wants us to feel the utter sadness of the consequences now felt by Tamar. This is a difficult scene to look at. And there's an urging here for us again to consider the sinfulness, the nature of sin. Now we can be looking at this narrative and be upset about it. We can even be fascinated by how dreadful it is. Sometimes we view sin, we view the sin of others, 
in the wrong way, with the wrong kind of attention. Consider when you're on the highway and there's a bad accident and all the traffic begins to back up for miles and miles. Now the accident, as you get closer, you see is off to the side. It's already been moved away. There's nothing really obstructing traffic. So why the slowdown? People want to see. It's like show and tell. How bad is it? We're gawking. I remember several years ago seeing an interview of a celebrity demonstrating all the signs of losing all grip on reality. It was almost shocking the things that he was saying. And that's why it got all the airtime. It was replayed over and over again as this man is clearly demonstrating he's losing all grip on reality. And people were fascinated. They were gawking. The point is that it's possible to observe this train wreck and miss the point. We could be sitting here thinking about all the ways that this is bad or we we don't like it or what else happened. But the point that God is trying to reveal to us is our sin causes disaster. The Spirit is putting on full display the wickedness inherent in us all. We are to grieve over sin like this. We're to be humbled and even deeply disturbed by the ways that we can act just like this when we're in the grip of our sin. Again, it's easy to say, well, I haven't done anything like this. But notice what James, how James describes our temptations and sinfulness He writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desires. Is that not exactly what is happening to Amnon? He's being carried away. He's being swept away in the flood of his lust. He's not thinking. He's out of control. He's given himself entirely over to his sin. So James continues, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The description of being dragged away by our own self-deception is a graphic portrayal of the nature of our hearts. It's like a predator that grabs its prey in its jaws and in its paws and drags it away to be devoured somewhere else later. It isn't just sexual lust that works this way. Every one of our sins is a desperate and self-deceived attempt to build a monument to self, to make self God. Sin brings disaster into our lives. We will next look at the people we ought to observe, but let's finish our reading of the chapter and we'll consider each character then in turn. Verse 23 continues. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son. Let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Absalom pressed him, but David would not go, but gave him his blessing. 
Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom has this been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of, ah- of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So we see next the people we ought to observe. There are five characters that cross the stage in this chapter. We've considered Tamar and the devastating consequences of sin felt in her life. Next we'll look at the four men presented and see the deficiencies that the narrator reveals about each of them. First we consider Amnon and false love. Now each of these stories turn, each of these men turn on a point. It looks like they're showing some characteristic or virtue that is not bad in and of itself. But it's false. Each of them are false. If we didn't know the story, what we first read of Amnon is not all that bad. And we may expect the story to run in another direction. A happy direction about love. We're told in verse 1, he loves Tamar. The word by itself indicates nothing sinister. It's the normal word for love. We wouldn't start to suspect something is wrong about this love until in verse 2 we read, he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. So maybe this is just puppy love and he's infatuated and is immature. But it goes on, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now what's revealed in verse 2 is that this is not a righteous kind of love. He's not seeking to pursue her in an honorable, committed way. The last statement there in verse 2 is even frightening. He wanted to have her as his own possession. He saw her as an object of desire to do something to her. The rest of the text bears out what he had in his lust-enslaved mind. 
Now, what are we to make of the incredible reversal of his feelings that we see once he's had his way with her? I mean, it tells us in verse 15 that he immediately hates her. Well, how does that square with what it says that he loved her? The word hate is used four times in that verse. What what has happened? You see the sick pathology of sin in our hearts. The grave danger of believing something that's told to us over and over again in our world right now. That you have the right to choose who you love. No, you don't. I want you to see very clearly God's law, his word alone, has the right to tell us who we can love. Some are out of bounds. This woman was off limits. And he says, I don't care. I want her anyway. To quote a character from modern children's fiction, he says, humans have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them. Do you think God knows that? Do you think he understands that? In our fallenness, we don't choose what is good and right and best for us. We're controlled by our passions and dragged away and chase those things which are actually the worst for us. God sets the parameters. And when we pursue love outside of them, we will always end up dissatisfied. And notice, this man is disgusted. There's one way and only one way to find the kind of sexual satisfaction that Amnon is looking for, and that is God's way. This has been demonstrated again and again, even confirmed by unbelievers in secular studies. The most satisfying intimacy is found within the monogamous commitment of marriage. This man is after something he will not find. Do you see the self-deception? Do you see the lie of the world? Do you see the nature of sin within us? He got what he wanted, but it didn't deliver. In this passage, we see that Amnon's love is false love. It's selfish, stealing, grasping, desperate, overwhelming, uncontrolled lust. This kind of base wickedness revealed just how pathetic of a man he truly was. This is no man. He took what was not given to him. And this kind of pornographic lust always reveals the weakness within the heart. He saw her as nothing but an object. She was nothing to him. She did not want him and he hated her her for that she didn't value him she didn't fulfill him and that's what he wanted from her she was a conquest she was supposed to fulfill his ego but by forcing himself on her she revealed what he was every time he saw her she would have reminded him of just how pathetic a man he was just how undesirable he really was His pride couldn't stand it. If given over to our own sinful nature, we will choose to set our selfish desires on those things that will later detest us, will disgust us. You see, God has not set up his laws to hinder us from what is good 
but to to deny to us what will enslave us. When we're being tempted, sin always promises more than it can deliver. Amnon's sin has disastrous consequences on his own soul. Consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They are headed to hell. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These, as all other sins, are to be punished in hell. And Amnon chose to pursue these sins to the destruction of his soul. But this doesn't have to be the final destination, does it? Paul continues, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This tells us God is able to rescue us from any sin. Any sin. He can rescue the sexual sinner if the kind of repentance is made that we saw in Psalm 51. God, have mercy on me. Create a new spirit within me. Turn to Christ in repentance from your sin this morning. Second, we see Jonadab and false wisdom. Jonadab is a fascinating character in our story and potentially the most dangerous. He appears to be wise. He's described as such in verse 3. In our ESV, it says crafty, but the word is wise, and the meaning of the word there again carries no negative connotation. The context reveals what kind of wisdom this man possessed. Now, what we see from the passage is that he possessed, he possessed a treacherous wisdom. He was wise in understanding how to work the angles. He's a politician. He knows how to manipulate others into getting what he wants. He's the ultimate pragmatist. Why would he encourage his cousin Amnon to deceive the king and lure his innocent sister in a compromised situation? How is that wisdom? How is this friendship? How does he know that Absalom had only killed Amnon since the day that he had violated Absalom's sister? How did he know that? This is a duplicitous man. It's very likely he's in league with Absalom and he's playing both sides. So here before us is Wormtongue from the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, whispering poison in the halls of the king, seeking influence and power by whatever means necessary. Proverbs 30 verse 20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. King James states with even stronger emphasis, a companion of fools will be destroyed. It's a kind of progressive parallelism. It's not equal. It grows in severity. There's great danger in walking, in listening, in surrounding yourself with fools. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis concludes, Jonadab is perhaps the most dangerous man in this whole fiasco. Amnon's evil is relatively restricted. He'll always be in bed with someone tending to his hormones. 
But Jonadab's skill to leak evil everywhere. He's dangerous because he has skill without scruple, wisdom without ethics, insight without integrity. Next, we consider Absalom and false justice. Now, the entire passage, what is being set up here in verses 1 through 22, is the conflict that will continue for chapters between Absalom and David. What it does is provides for us his motivation for saying, I should be king because David is not a good ruler. And the problem with Absalom is he kind of has a point. We know that this is about Absalom because he's the first one addressed in verse 1. The following chapters talk about his rebellion. In the, fo- in the context of the following chapters, what we learn of him is this is an ambitious, self-consumed, bitter, young prince. He wants nothing less than the throne itself. And he'll do whatever he has to do in order to get it. He'll take the evil committed by his half-brother and just stash it away until it's convenient. So I want you to think about that. He's not interested in righteous judgment. He's not interested in comforting or protecting his sister. Only revenge. Do you see how hollow then his words of comfort to his sister are? He's filled with hate and malice and bitterness. And because his father fails to act as a godly king should, that's his opportunity. Now, the challenge for us in this passage is that we're kind of secretly glad that he gets revenge. Amnon's a creep. There's something in us that thinks this frontier justice at least kind of settles the score. He gets what's coming to him. But this man is is in nothing less. He's committed premeditated murder. This is not the righteousness of God. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Paul commands in Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Throughout the Bible, God's referred to as a God of vengeance many times over. David has modeled to us what a kind of man suffering under injustice should be doing. How he should turn the situation to God, Christ, even more so. God's judgment alone is wise and just. Yet so often we want to see action taken right away in our timing. We demand justice to happen now. But we don't have the wisdom to know what that looks like. Now certainly this doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue every avenue of human justice available to you. Nor does God's word prohibit us from protecting our families. But Absalom is just as selfish and wicked as the other characters in the narrative. And that's to be made clear in our minds. Just because we kind of can say Amnon deserved something worse than what David gave him doesn't give Absalom the right to take justice, justice into his own hands. Think of it. Absalom's sin will cause great disaster over the next several chapters as he rebels against his father, God's king, and causes civil war among God's people. We'll look at Absalom more in more depth over the next several weeks. Lastly, we see David in his false anger. We want to consider David's response here in chapter 13. He's been one of the main characters in 2 Samuel. But as we look at his responses, they're overwhelmingly disappointing, aren't they? 
In this chapter, David is duped twice into being an unwitting accomplice to the crimes of his sons, and they are crimes. When he finds out about Amnon's sins, he's rightly outraged. He's very angry. And that's it. Nothing more. He takes no action. He doesn't act in righteousness. He doesn't defend the, daughter, the, def- the honor of his daughter. He doesn't try the crimes of either of his sons. He's a passive fool. Left only to watch his children destroy one another's lives and tear apart God's kingdom. What kind of a king is this? 1 Kings 1, 6 summarizes David's parental neglect by saying he never at any time displeased his son by asking, why have you done thus? One author accurately and sadly summarizes the picture of David in this chapter, a second Eli, this David, who places his fatherly love higher than the will and justice of the Lord. Remember, God had placed him the man after God's own choosing, on the throne to exercise justice over the people of God. God had placed him in his home as a father to protect his daughter and lead his family, and he did neither. Matthew Henry wisely concludes of this passage, grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. We do not find that David's children imitated him in his devotion, But his false steps they trod in, and in those did much worse and repented not. Parents, know not how fatal the consequences may be if in any instance they give their children bad examples. Parenting is difficult. This passage can place much guilt and anxiety in our minds as we consider our responsibilities. Can I encourage you from the warning of this text? Be faithful in your home. No matter what ages your children are, even if they're grown, be faithful as a parent. There are still actions you can take, conversations you might have. Please don't set aside godly and biblical discipline because you struggle to understand it or because you just don't like it or because it's inconvenient or because it's hard. God's word tells us no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Of course, it's not easy. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. Think of that word, the picture God's giving us. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Do you see peace in David's home? There are many commands to discipline your children in Proverbs. There are grave consequences for passivity or outright disobedience to what God has commanded you, mom and dad, to do in your home. One pastor wisely summarizes, David's failure to govern his son so as to mold them for godliness would ultimately cause more harm to his realm than all the Ammonite and Philistine spears that David faced in battle. You realize that? the anguish of soul his children produced in his heart and life, I believe, this is my conclusion, opinion at this point, was far greater than his sufferings at the hands of Saul. Church family, I love you and would spare you from grief like this. So can I give you some words of biblical counsel? 
First, this passage should make us desperate to pray. Desperate to pray for our children more faithfully. Think of all the lessons on parenting we have in 1 and 2 Samuel. All the examples. We can't guarantee the outcome of our parenting. I'm not telling you you can. But God calls each of us to faithfulness. And when he condemned his leaders, it was because they weren't faithful to discipline their children. Godly men in these books often had wicked children. Yet Saul, an ungodly king, surprisingly, has a very godly son. So we recognize God is sovereign in the lives of our children. He demands that we be faithful. That is attainable. If you want to guarantee an outcome of how your kids turn out, I can't give you that from the Bible. But I can encourage you to be faithful. So let's start with prayer. This isn't just important for those in our body who hear me who have children. This is for our church family. This is a job we engage in together. Pray for one another. You're in life groups, some of you. You're in community groups. You're in a membership of a body. Pray for those with children. Second, know God's word when it does speak to parenting. If you're going to set aside what God says to discipline and lead your family the way you think you should, beware that you're taking issue, not with the best wisdom of this group of people, of this man. You're taking issue with the wisdom of God who will hold you accountable as he does here. You better understand what God tells you to do before you set it aside. There are also many excellent books that can help us understand how to do this practically. Talk to one of the pastors. There's several that we can recommend. Finally, seek the counsel of your brothers and sisters in the body. This is an amazingly untapped resource among us. Pursue the wisdom of someone in the church with greater maturity and experience and be honest with them about your struggles. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no judgment when you admit, I struggle to parent. Sometimes I get impatient, or sometimes I lose my temper, or sometimes I'm lazy, or sometimes I'm just not consistent. Would you pray with me? How did you deal with that in your life? Ask them to pray with you and for you. Ask them to share with you what they did well, what they didn't do well. Titus 2 tells us, it urges us, it even commands us, That the older are to teach the younger in these very practical matters of daily living. So ignore that instruction to your own detriment. We're foolish and miss the blessing God provides to us through other believers in this area. If we don't pursue wisdom from other believers within our body. Now for those who are older, please hear this advice with the gentleness I'm intending it. If a couple with children come to you for advice, don't immediately jump in and start talking at them. Listen. Listen first. How all of us need to take this lesson to heart. We can serve one another well, not by telling them all of our ideas and sharing all of our experiences, but by bearing one another's burdens, by weeping with those who weep, by listening first. Ask lots of questions. Enter into their struggle. Only when you know that you've heard them carefully, 
then can you begin to offer them advice. And go slow. Go slow. You remember what it was like, don't you? By God's grace, we can encourage and serve one another as we strive together for faithfulness in our homes. Our last point is very brief, the perspective we ought to keep. Now, doesn't this chapter cause us to ask, what is God doing? What is happening? Now, notice, I hope you notice, God's never even mentioned once in this chapter. So has the kingdom and the king he raised up failed? I think that's why there's this little emphasis about maybe all the king's sons have been killed. Has God's promises given to David in chapter 7 been totally undone by Absalom's rebellion? No. No. Will things spiral out of control because God is unable or unwilling to intervene? Certainly not. We know God is in control because what we see happening is the fulfillment of his very word. He said this would happen. It's just uglier than we thought because we don't get to control the consequences of our sin. He's fulfilling his word of judgment and discipline in David's life and it is terrible. The heartache caused by David's family choosing their own sinful way presents greater pain and sorrow than even the death of Bathsheba's first child. It's as if just for a moment, God now has removed his restraining grace and he's allowing men's sinful choices to take their course. And God says in his punishment, okay, have your way. The consequences of our sin are great and devastating. The passage is challenging for us today because sin seems so rampant and its effects so costly. But can you see why this illustration of the consequences of our sinful choices is so necessary and ultimately helpful? And we can hear it as a word of warning from a gracious and loving God. Don't go this way. The text urges us to understand that our sin brings unforeseen disaster into our lives. How does a text help us today like this? How does a text like this help us? This passage helps me fear the sinfulness residing in my own heart. It helps me fear the natural consequences that will undoubtedly come if I don't repent, if I don't turn, if I don't address the needs of my heart. The text is here before you to convince you again of your desperate condition. It wants you to know you're desperate. It tells us that our sinfulness is gravely dangerous to those in our home, to our friends, to ourselves. It affects people in ways you don't see, you can't anticipate, you won't know until later. So please don't minimize or compartmentalize this passage by telling yourself this, their condition isn't the same as mine. The nature of our hearts is the same. Are we truly above committing the same kinds of sin as the man after God's own choosing? The writer of the Psalms? You think you have greater devotion to God than him? You're above sinning this way? When we think that way, we get no grace. We get no help. We aren't above these sins. We're preserved only by his daily grace. Listen to how Paul describes his own heart in Romans 7. 
He says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. So no longer is it I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he cries out later, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this rotting corpse of sin that is tied to my nature? But he doesn't leave us there. He concludes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So finally, this passage leads us to renewed commitment to follow Christ as our only hope of conquering sin. With David, we cry out from Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. I need to be made new. In Romans 8, Paul begins a lengthy discussion of how we're to now to strive to walk in the spirit by his grace. We don't have to be controlled by our sin. Every person in this passage, but Tamar, reveals the overwhelming destruction of sin. Her own father, the king, has failed her. It shows us we need a greater king. We need a greater leader. We need a king who will do justly, who will punish sin, who will protect the innocent. And God has given him to us in his son. Only his son can heal the deep and devastating wounds of those who have been sinned against in ways like this. Only his son will judge the sins we see in this passage with perfect justice one day. And only his son is able to forgive any person who comes to him in repentance and faith. Sin is horrible, isn't it? It's like a bomb of sin has exploded across this text and there's carnage everywhere. Everybody's suffering. And our sin just as assuredly leads to disaster all around us. The answer to sin is Christ. So let us find grace in him again and again as we fight our own sin. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come before you crying out for your mercy and your grace. Father, give us wisdom. First in understanding the nature of our hearts, the inclinations, the power of our desires to drag us away into disaster. Give us wisdom to know to fear you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to fear and know and love you. May our love for you deter us in our sinfulness. May we look to our King who is just and righteous and forgiving. May we look forward to the day when he will make all things right. We worship you. We submit to you. Help us to obey you. In Jesus' name. Amen.